0: Coming up, you know, we're going to talk to Diane Gray, and and we had now how I met Diane Gray was via David Kessler. Uh, we've had David on the show many times talking about grief and grieving and all that, and then I found out about Diane. She's the CEO of Hospice and Healthcare Communication and the president of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. David Kessler wrote several books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and of course, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the, uh, I don't know, we'll find out from Diane what her official title is, but I call her the grandmother of grieving. That woman was just someone who really came out and led the way with her research and and her protocol of helping people to grieve. We're going to talk about end-of-life care uh, and so much more. Diane, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, David. I'm, I'm pleased to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you with us. What is your role as a president of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation? What's your role there?
1: <laughs> I think probably <laughs> like presidents of a lot of foundations, we wear many, <laughs> many, many, many hats. Um, I bet. No, I, I think in my case, it's a little bit of everything. I collaborate, first of all, with global leaders in palliative care and in end-of-life care to continue Elizabeth's message of compassionate care for the dying. Uh, Also, as well, we continue Elizabeth's um, real intent was to assure that patients have the the right to know their prognosis um, and their health outcome. Um, You know, these last 40 years, we've seen tremendous strides in that arena, but it is also still shocking um, how many clinicians do not want to tell their patients what their prognosis is, meaning what the potential health health outcome is. Um, as well, Elizabeth felt very strongly that patients, all patients, have the right to access to proper pain management and pain medication. Um, and that specifically refers to families and patients that are afraid of using properly prescribed medications like morphine and methadone. Um, right. some families see pain as a way to, um, you know, assure them that the patient is still alive. And then in some countries, um, it's especially throughout parts of Africa and India, um, we see patients who, millions of patients who are dying of cancer and other life threatening disease without proper pain management, meaning that they are treating the pain of cancer with Tylenol. Tylen Always. Oh. Uh-huh. So oh my um so as president of the Elizabeth Kubler Ross Foundation, my role is to keep an eye on those situations and contribute wherever I can and however I can to collaborate, creating programming and uh, really ponder how we can shift legislation with other global organizations that are really leading the charge. Like ICPCN, International Children's Palliative Care Network, World Palliative Care Alliance, uh, National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization here in the States and, and others.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, Diane. If 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 I ever got to that space where there's a lot of pain, you won't see me fighting to take any pain medication necessary to, <laughs> to to alleviate that. Um, you know, it, it's shocking to me that to hear some of these things about these other countries. Let me go back to a statement that you just made. Why is it that clinicians? Why is it that professionals would not be upfront with the patients in regards to prognosis?
1: You know, David, it, I understand it better having been through it with my own son. Um, It's hard. It it is really hard to look someone in the face and find the right words to tell them, hey, you know what? I have tried everything that I can try, and it's not good enough. I can't save your life. I think you're going to die. Can you imagine being that person? It's horrible. And so that's one, one part of it. Another part of it has to do with not wanting the patient to be without hope. Uh, Another part of it has to do with a belief in miracles. We know they exist. We don't want to remove that from the patient. So it's a very fine line. And also, too, you know, I I encourage listeners to remember that, you know, our physicians and clinicians, they're people, too. They've got their own stuff that they're dealing with. And and this is a very difficult thing. And sometimes it's not that they don't want to; it's that they don't know how or how to get started.
0: So, so share with us if if you were if that was in your situation, if you were in that situation, and you had to tell someone, uh, you know, we've done everything we can. There's nothing else we can do. We can try to make you comfortable, but there's nothing else we can do to save your life. What what would be the words that you would use, or you would train professionals to use, in order to be honest? but empathetic
1: um i know about this firsthand because i had to tell my 14 year old son that yeah so, t- no, this was
0: I, I remember reading diana i was going to get to this question but a for 10 years your son battled cancer is that true
1: sort of <laughs> but yeah, uh, my son battled a rare neurodegenerative brain disorder and it, right. read it was Neurodegenerative Brain Iron Accumulation Disorders. It's N-B-I-A disorders.org. So Austin's disorder affected the basal ganglia, which basically, you know, when he was, he was born, apparently healthy, walked, talked, we played hockey, tennis, you know, in the streets, we ran, we played football, we went to the beach, all that stuff, uh, looked normal, et cetera. But Austin would fall down a lot. When he was two turning three, we found out that he had... Uh, retinitis pigmentosa, which is a disease that causes um, blindness eventually, slowly over time. And he would fall down sometimes 30, 40 times a day toward Mm. his, you know, three, four-year-old stage. And we didn't know what it was. They told us he had this uh, vision disorder. And long story short, that was the tip of the iceberg. Um, Austin ultimately was diagnosed with this rare brain disorder. As part of, you know, it was the big umbrella and the vision disorder was just a part of that. Um, eventually to get back to your question, um, I needed to tell Austin and sobbing. <laughs> it was oh. not pretty. Um, you know, Austin, the doctors have done everything that they could, that they can. They're going to keep trying. Um, but right now I'm not sure that we're going to win this one. And so we need to focus on keeping you free from pain. And I promise you, I told him that I would, I promised him that uh, we would together with the doctors do everything that we could to keep him free from pain. Because most patients, all patients, I believe, fear, well, how much will it hurt if I'm going to die? Right. Not just the dying, the event of death. How much is it going to hurt? So I think, one, when we talk to our patients, clinicians or family members both, assure them we are going to do everything, everything we can to make sure that your wishes are honored, that we keep you free from pain as much as possible. I think it's irresponsible to promise that we will keep patients free from pain because that is not practical all the time, every moment. But I think it's fair to promise that we will do everything we can. I think it's important to listen. I promise that I will listen to your needs and your wants. What is it that Mm -hmm. you want? What would you like? How would you like to finish this out? And whether finish it out could be six days or 16 years. Who knows? So how would you like to live the rest of your life? Yes.
0: I'm going to ask you to hold right there. We're going to go to a quick break. Diane Gray is with us, our guest right now, CEO of Hospice and Healthcare Communications, president of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, expressing right now how she helped her son after a a 10-year battle with a neurodegenerative disorder move to the next level. When we come back, we're going to talk to to Diane about what was his response. What was his response to her words when, when we return? We'll be covering that and so many more questions. Now, I want to tell you this, gang. As of 9 o'clock Eastern time tonight, this interview with Diane Gray will be live, podcasted, archived at our website, talkdavid.com. If you have friends and family members that need to hear this, make sure you let them know. I'm David Essel. Stay there. Are you ready for a miracle? Hi, David Essel here, inviting you to join our 10-week course, Success and Miracles, beginning Tuesday, October 7th, for 10 straight weeks. You'll be joined by many other success-minded people who want what you want, success and miracles. Whether it's love, wealth, or health, go to TalkDavid.com right now. This teleconference series is open to anyone in the USA. That's TalkDavid.com. Join the course, Success and Miracles, to change your life now. TalkDavid.com. That's TalkDavid.com. Into the grave You're tuned into David Essel live, America's positive radio show. Like us on Facebook and listen to hundreds of inspirational archive shows at talkdavid.com. Now here's your host, Mr. Motivation, David Essel, coast to coast for the past 24 years broadcasting live out of Studio E in Los Angeles, California. You're tuned into David Essel live, America's positive radio talk show. My guest Diane Gray, CEO of Hospice and Healthcare Communications president of the elizabeth kubler ross foundation talking about the end of life care and she was sharing the story of her son austin and and diane when you shared with him that the doctors have done everything we're going to make your your the, the rest of your days as comfortable as possible what was his response and and what was he like 14 15 14 14 what was his response
1: yes. Um i think I think Austin's response was like a lot of patients. I think most patients or I should say many, many many patients know that they're dying already. I really do. I think the fact that we're telling them that we're a little as caregivers and as family members and even clinicians sometimes it doesn't come um we're We're the last to know. I think long term care patients know that they're dying. So Austin, he—I could hear him breathe, you know, really deeply, with a deep sigh, and he blinked his eyes. He was nonverbal at that point, and um, oh. and and had been, you know, for a year or so. He, um, you know, I think that Austin, he knew I wasn't telling anything, telling him anything new, but I think that the assurance for him was as important as the prognosis. I will not leave you alone unless you want to be. I will do everything I can to keep you comfortable and free from pain. I love you with all of my heart. And I think that those are things that are applicable to all patients. Um, To feel loved, to feel that they will not be forgotten, to feel that they will be free from pain and that you will help them as much as possible, be as comfortable as possible, and that you will, you know, especially with verbal patients, listen to what their wishes are. That's one thing that's important about Elizabeth kubler Ross's work. Um, Elizabeth, as much as people said, you know, oh, this is the death and dying lady, she was really the life and living lady. She was all about live life now, So, you know, an important part of that end-of-life program for Austin and other patients that I've been with has been, what do you want to do? You know, we don't have to finish this all sad and and morose. What do you want to do? You want to swing on the swings? And I do with Austin, just like other patients know with their loved ones, do you want to eat ice cream in bed, you know, for breakfast? I mean,
0: right, right? Right, 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 right. Do
1: do you want to swim in the pool and... I got him out of bed, and I had one nurse who was, like, screaming bloody murder. You can't do that. You know, and um, we, another nurse said, oh, yeah, watch us. You know, we hooked up um, 50-foot sections of oxygen tubing from the concentrator out through the guest bathroom into the pool, you know, obviously connected, so that Austin sure. could have his O2 but could float in the pool with me holding him. And for a kid oh. who had been bed bound for five years, floating in the pool is pretty great, you know. Oh,
0: absolutely, Diane. So, when, when, when this when this was all going on, were you already working in this industry? No, uh, <laughs> no, I was. Yeah. Uh,
1: I was uh, trying to stay afloat myself, you know. Y- which, yeah, which ended up and no sleep and you know, parenting. Uh, you know, like most people. But I had started um, a few nonprofit foundations already um, based upon, and they were running concurrently because that's just a little give back. That's something that I could do based on experiences that I had seen through my son, like a special needs camp or art in hospitals, you know, so that other kids could benefit from what often could or could not do.
0: Right. What, what, what's your take on the right to die?
1: Can you be more specific? Sure.
0: Someone that decides they want to take their life because they're in a situation where that they see there's no return.
1: Yeah, I, I totally understand it. I'm not sure that I agree specifically with, um, the methods involved sometimes. Do I get it? Yeah, I get it you know my son broke a bone in a muscle spasm he crushed his molars oh. in a muscle spasm do i wow. understand that they were, there were days that i wanted for him to be free from pain and that free from pain meant dying yeah totally i remember sobbing call you know asking the doctors to do something and there was nothing that they felt they could do so do i get it yeah i get it um i I also believe though that sometimes patients feel that they cannot possibly endure one more minute of anything and that nothing is good is uh, nothing good is going to come from a situation. Right. Uh, having been there right. and having been bedside with other dying children and adults. And sometimes David there are these life lessons that happen and I, I I hate to say that it comes sometimes at the hand of profound pain and suffering, but it right. does
0: I understand that if If Austin came to you a year before he he died and yeah. and, and and he was able to communicate and say, "You know what, enough already. Um, I, I want to leave would would you have been able to honor that?
1: Well, it depends. There are two ways to to do that. And I'll tell you specifically, so the difference is, for example, if he were having treatments like a cancer, right, and yeah. he needed more radiation and more chemotherapy and more radiation and more chemotherapy, and he said, "Mom, I'm done, man, I'm over it, I'm done. I would have honored his wish immediately because these kids, especially young adults it's yeah. their it's their body, and I've right. listened to other parents compassionately. I get it. They don't know what they're talking about. They could live. Da, 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 da. But you know, these kids, they they all kids, especially like I said young adults and adolescents, they have the right to say I am tired and I don't want to do this. And sometimes the doctors are the ones to say, "Oh, well, and I had a case like this recently. A doctor at a at a prominent US hospital told the parent, "Oh no, we can do a new gut transplant." for this child that had a, an un, um, incurable disease. Mm. I'm tr- I was going to say untreatable, but that's not true. It was incurable. Yeah,
0: incurable, right.
1: And, and the parent said, no, I do not want to do a full gut transplant on my 21-year-old son.
0: Right. So right. I would have right, honored
1: right. his wish, but to end his life as in Kevorkianism? No. Yes. No, no. Mm-mm.
0: How would you have honored his, his wish then?
1: You know, I I don't know. And that's a really good, and that's probably, <laughs> by the way, congratulations. I think that's my toughest question out of well over 100 um, <laughs> radio interviews in the past, you know, year and a half. Um, <laughs> well, David,
0: let me ask you, all. let me interrupt you. <laughs> Diane, I got <gotcha>. you. <laughs> let, let me ask you this question. Do you, do you have time to stay for a few more questions? Yes. Okay, we're going to go to a quick break. Diane Gray is, is my guest. And Diane, I'm going to give you like four minutes to think about that answer so you can come back and, and let us know that. Diane Gray, CEO of Hospice and Healthcare Communications, president of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. Her website, hhccommunications.com, hhccommunications.com. More to come with Diane Gray right after this break. Stay right there. You're tuned in to David Essel Alive, America's positive radio show. Like us on Facebook and listen to hundreds of inspirational archive shows at TalkDavid.com. Now, here's your host, Mr. Motivation, David Essel. David Essel in the box with you every Saturday, 6 to 9 Eastern, 3 to 6 Pacific. And we're talking about end of life care with Diane Gray. And this interview will be archived. At our website tonight, if you have friends or family members that you know could benefit from this information, TalkDavid.com is the website. The, uh, the podcast of the show will be up there as of 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tonight. Diane Gray, CEO of Hospice and Healthcare Communications, president of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. The website, HHCCommunications.com. Diane. Difficult question. Before the break, we were talking about end of uh, end of the right to die, and and your son Austin. If he came to you a year before he passed and said, "Mom, I've had enough," you said you wouldn't go the Jack uh, Kavorkian way. But what way would we go?
1: So, that, I, uh, thank you for giving me a minute to really uh, yeah. ponder that question. Well, first of all, I wanted to bring up that it's illegal. <laughs> to uh, assist in the suicide of someone, okay, right. here in the United States. It, it is illegal. So let's check that box. Second of all, um, in Austin's case, in, in his case specifically, um, I can't really say, well, what if he would have, because there, I have a thousand what ifs. You know, what if he learned to drive a car? What if he yeah. learned to surf, which, you know, I think would have been in the cards genetically, but but yes. in, in, in Austin's case, um, in all honesty, what did happen was that Austin was on a feeding tube from the time he was five um, because he was still, you know, playing and talking and we didn't know what was ahead. So Austin got a feeding tube because he was unable to chew solid food after the age of five. So, in Austin's case, and we had hospice, um, and I want to be really clear what that means in our case. So, we had, Austin was at home the last five years of his life, and especially because he was a pediatric hospice patient, that means that we could receive hospice services until he was the age of 18. But hospice in our case did not mean we had 24-hour nursing by a long stretch. Uh, I was Austin's primary caregiver you know, sometimes for 72 or 96 hours at a pop, and the nurses would come in intermittently and hospice would stop by once a week or once a month to do a recertification. But at the end of Austin's life, what happened was um, he was injured, he was turned, we could not find the source of Austin's injury, and it, uh, according to the clinicians, um, it, it appeared that Austin was dying, uh, clinically dying. And so hospice um, helped us through a medical ethical decision-making process, through our church community, through talking ad nauseum to friends and family members. Um, We made the decision to withhold nutrition and hydration from Austin with the help of our hospice team. So Austin died after 18 days. Um, Oh, wow. it mm -hmm, It was the most gut-wrenching decision of my life, but also the most loving decision because Austin was dying. And, and like many people, and this is important for your listeners too, especially those with adult patients who say, I don't want to eat anymore. And then the wife or the husband says, but honey, you have to eat to keep up your, and the husband's like, nor no, the wife is saying, no, I don't want to eat anymore. That's the right. body's way of saying no more. I'm ready to shut down and die, which was the case with Austin. The more we fed him, there was just a cycle of problems that would occur. Um, it was horrific. Food oh. exacerbated the problem of Austin living and him dying, truthfully. So after wow. 18 days, Austin died a very peaceful death um, on February 25th and, um, of 2005, and it was peaceful. And it was as peaceful, and it's so I could script it. Really.
0: No kidding, yeah. No kidding,
1: now, it was beautiful.
0: Oh my God! You know what, Diane? It's just amazing to hear you speak like that. I, 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 it, it is mind blowing, and it's beautiful.
1: It, it was beautiful. I mean, I, it was all, David in a way bizarre. I mean. We were used to having nurses in our house, and, you know, my daughter at the time, we knew Austin was dying because he'd been without food for 18 days. It was just a matter of which day, you yeah. know, um, and I got up, I uh, went to the door, and the nurse was knocking on the door at, that night because I had taken a, a, a brief nap between 2 and 4 in the morning, And um, and I got up, and I opened the door, and the nurse was standing at the door, and she said, I think it's time. And I said, "Okay." And I turned to my daughter. My daughter said, "I know, mommy. I I told him to go." And I—oh goodness! There was this communication between each of us. And I went into Austin's room and said the twenty-third Psalm and the Lord's Prayer. And the nurse was with Christina and brought her in. And we each held Austin's hand. And the nurse, you know, stepped back and let us handle this as a family. And Austin took his last very peaceful breath, there was no gasping, there was no and he died, and he died. You know
0: yeah if you if you look back at what you know now compared to what you knew in two thousand one, two, three, four, five, is there mm-hmm. anything different that you would have done with Austin's condition and his dying?
1: no. And, I, and I'll tell you why, honestly. Um, yeah. We lived, man. <laughs> we we lived out <laughs> loud. We put like the furniture back. We had dance parties with kids. We had sleepovers for my daughter's friends. We had, you know, I, I just wish I could have been two people. I wish I could have been four people so that I was enough for everybody. Christmases uh, were not, they were f- as fun as I could make them, but I couldn't be Martha Stewart, Betty Crocker, Santa Claus, Mommy, Daddy,
0: <laughs> everybody,
1: all at once. Uh, the homework still happened, you know. But I will yeah. say, I have these friends, David. They would just, gosh, they, you know, provided, and our faith community provided, and, and God mm. provided. And I don't know, uh, and I'm not glamorizing it, because it was hard. You know, being yes. without sleep for ninety-six hours at a time and seventy-two hours at a time, but so no, we we really we <laughs> we we laughed <laughs> a lot and, wow. and we we really lived. So no.
0: That is such a beautiful answer. I mean, even if you said, oh my gosh, yes, we would do these 15 things differently, it would be, it'd be great because people listening is what the show is about. Yeah, I want, I want our listeners to be able to be educated by your experience and to learn about what we can do to help someone who's going through that because even though yours was an extended case, everyone is going to go through the experience of losing someone. Yep. And Diane, that's the reason I have you on the show. Is because I want our guests to be or our listeners to be educated on oh my gosh, and this is one this is like sex you know no we had we had a great author on sex tonight and dying mm-hmm. no one no one wants to talk about sex and dying i know right yeah it's it's like okay. oh no I no no, no. <laughs> yeah we'll we'll talk about money <laughs> we'll talk about you know all this other kind of crap, but when it comes to two of the most important things in life. Sex and Dying is that we get really, oh, no, let's hush-hush. That's not going to happen to me. That's not what we talk about. That's not appropriate or whatever it might be. But, but your appearance on the show is making it highly appropriate for people to think, to ponder, to contemplate, then to be able to make the best decisions. And your organizations, and I want to give the website out again, can help people make the right decisions, um I know we just have a couple minutes, but your documentary, you have an end-of-life care documentary coming out?
1: I do. Well, it's work in progress, as you know, with film. So I'm the senior producer for a film by PBS, uh, WEPA and Creative Visions Productions, which is based in Malibu. And that's, um, I work with them. And, um, we are working very hard to put together a PBS documentary on end of life care based upon the book by Dr. Ira Bayot called Best Care Possible. And, um, it really talks about well-being through the end of life. That is is an event. Um, and also, too, it encourages people to think about life and end of life in terms of it's a personal process. It is not a medicalized process. It is about right. life.
0: Love it. I love it. I love it. And, then, and then one of the things you said, and I want to reiterate to our listeners, is that, you know, Diane Gray's response was, we lived. We lived while Austin was going through the process. We lived. Diane, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was absolutely awesome to have you with us.
1: Oh, thanks, too. And also, regarding um, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation, that website is ekrfoundation.org. And there are a slew of YouTube videos up of Elizabeth's work. And um, some books just came out, were re-released on death and dying, on grief and grieving, as you know. And life lessons. Um, so you can check those out on the website, to ekrfoundation.org. David, thank you.
0: Oh, you're welcome, Diane. I look forward to talking to you again. Great.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay. Bye-bye now. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming back with your questions, your emails, your texts, everything about you. You're tuned in to David Essel Live, America's positive radio show, TalkDavid.com, where Diane's interview will be up in about a half hour. I'm David Essel. Stay there. Oh, 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 I think the cool thing about David Essel's way of teaching, really, is the way he asked the right questions and then had me do the homework to write down the answers to those questions.
2: Clients who have worked one-on-one with Master Life Coach David Essel are creating the life they've always wanted. So
0: happy to say that next month will be four years sober, and I owe a lot of that to David Essel's help and friendship through
2: the process. Their success has come from focus and accountability with David, and the same can happen for you. Life coaching programs start at under $200, so visit TalkDavid.com. That's TalkDavid.com.
0: Tuned into David Essel Alive, America's positive radio show. Like us on Facebook and listen to hundreds of inspirational archive shows at TalkDavid.com. Now, here's your host, Mr. Motivation, David Essel. What an amazing show tonight! We have uh, Bernie Siegel, Dr. Bernie Siegel, talking about his philosophy on passing through this plane. We have Dr. Alyssa Dweck talking about sexuality and and knowing thyself sexually which is just an amazing interview and then Diane Gray just shares this most incredible story about the whole concept of of dying with grace and and her son Austin and oh my lord all of these shows are archived tonight at 9 p.m. at talkdavid.com in our archived section of the website. So check all that out. Just beautiful. Just absolutely stunning, gorgeous. 1-800-548-TALK. Uh, text us, 941-266-7676. The texts are just off the charts, just off the charts. Uh, this one just came in, Role of Genetics and Weight Loss. Saw a YouTube video uh, video that you did on weight loss It said only 6% is due to genetics, then why is America so overweight? It's such a great question. And before I say anything more, I'm going to tell you this, is that in October... At the end of October we're doing a weight loss now and forever workshop that you can attend via teleconference. It's only $27. It's 2 hours long. Go to talkdavid.com and sign up today because we're going to give you the information that you need to know why why 60 to 70% of Americans are overweight. We're going to tell you that. The number one reason is lack of emotional coping skills. This is it. It's not genetics. It has nothing to do with genetics for 94% of people who are overweight or obese. It's a lack of emotional coping skills. It's growing up with food as an emotional crutch. That's what it's all about. That's where our overweightness and our obesity comes from. Is fast food a culprit? Well, fast food is a culprit just like alcohol is a culprit. You know, for the alcoholic, if you drink too much, you got a problem, but it isn 't the alcohol there 's billions of people that have a glass of wine every three, four, or five days every once a year it 's not an issue, so alcohol isn 't the problem it 's the person that can 't handle the alcohol because they don 't have emotional coping skills for their life, so they use alcohol food for people who are overweight and obese it 's the same thing we don 't have the coping skills to deal with. Shame, guilt, boredom, anxiety, depression, nervousness, low self-esteem, low self-confidence, fill in the blank. We just don't have the coping skills. We grew up looking at food as a a way to deal with it. When When you hear about comfort foods, what are comfort foods? Comfort foods are white flour, salt, sugar, fat. Those are the main comfort foods. And they do comfort you. Food is a drug. You consume the right type of food and the right amount of it, it's a drug, baby. Salt, sugar, white flour, fat hits the brain faster than you could believe. Calming the nerves momentarily. But it's not a fix. It's just a Band-Aid. So so anyway, that's the the bottom line of genetics and weight loss. University of Florida study, which I talk about all the time, 4% or 6% of people who are obese or overweight, it's because of genetics. The rest of us, it's us. 1-800-548-TALK. Text 941-266-7676. Um, oh, this is interesting. This just came in. My husband came home after meeting with two counselors and an attorney as we were going through a divorce and said that many people divorce and then get back together. Does this sound like sound advice? Oh, my Lord. No. Does it happen? Yes. Is it sound advice? In other words, what I'm reading here is you saying that your husband is coming home and saying, "Hey, listen, let's go through the divorce, but we'll probably we can get back together." I would never use that as a a, a train of thought. I never, ever, ever would use that as a train of thought. That hey, listen, let we're going to go through a divorce, but you know, there's a good chance we can get back together. Hell, no. Why would you want to spend the amount of money? and the pain and the discomfort of going through a divorce to get back together. Now, does it happen? Rarely? Yes. Do Are couples successful? Rarely? Yes. Rarely, rarely, rarely is the key phrase here, okay? But I wouldn't use it as a method of operation. <laughs> 1-800-548-TALK, 1-800-548-TALK. Uh, let's see. Several of your exercise videos talk about amino acids, For people in recovery from addictions, what are they used for? And can people without addictions use them? Hell yes. That's a great question. Okay, let me give you some of the amino acids that we've been recommending. And I'll tell you some client stories that have gotten off antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs because of of the amino acids that we're going to talk about. Um, Some real simple ones. Number one, tyrosine. Tyrosine. T-Y-R-O-S-I-N-E. Wonderful for focus. A lot of people have struggled, are struggling with focus these days, and tyrosine is beautiful, Taken on an empty stomach. Most people recommend start with 500 to 1,000 milligrams. DLPA, DL-phenylalanine is the full name, DLPA, mood balancing. So let me give you two stories. So I have two clients come in. They both have battled with depression for years and years and years and years. And we're sitting there and they're functioning. You know, they're, they're attorneys, they're financial planners. They, oh God, there's so many of them. Car dealers, what else do they do? Uh, people that I've gotten, um, jewelers, you name it. And they, they come in and they sit down and they say, you know, I've been battling with this and you know, I'm on these antidepressants, but so it doesn't seem to work. And we put them on DLPA and tyrosine with their physician's approval. As a matter of fact, two of the physicians that I recommended to my clients, I recommend, so go back to your doctors. There is a friend of mine, Hyla Cass, who I love. Hyla Cass is a psychiatrist. She wrote a book, Natural High. Check it out, Natural High. It's awesome. I've learned so much from her. Um, Oh God, there is so many people that I have learned immense, immense, immense amount of information with amino acids from. But you know, they after they the the clients went and talked to their doctors, their doctors did research on the internet and they said, Oh my gosh. David's right. Yes, let's start to cut back on your antidepressants and let's use tyrosine and DLPA, and they're both doing so much better. Okay, so so don't back off from that. Um, energy also with Siberian ginseng, fabulous for energy levels. And then the last one is a relaxant, relaxa- yeah, a relaxant uh, or a relaxation supplement, Gabitrol, My good friend Brian Cunningham. Uh, actually concocted this, created this a number of years ago for anti-stress. It's awesome. Go to rxstress.com. rxstress.com is his website for Gabatrol. So, yes, there's all kinds of natural supplements, non-addictive, natural supplements that could really be beneficial. And I would always talk to your doctor first, without a doubt. Uh, Gosh, we've had so many sex questions come on in. Um, well, let me, go to, let me go to one on exercise. This is brand new, and we just have a minute left. Your video on super slow training, why is it better than the traditional two count? So super slow training in the weight room, oh, my goodness, where you do 10 seconds in one direction and 10 seconds in the other, a 20-second repetition allows all the muscle fibers to be fired, decreases the chance of using momentum, so the muscles do more work. Check out The Body Fat Breakthrough by uh, Ellington Darden. We had Ellington and my mentor, Joe Cerulli, on about a month ago. They both worked together on that book, The, The Body Fat Breakthrough. Great information on changing your body. Hey, listen, life is about living, as Diane Gray said. As Bernie Siegel said, life is about living. Get out there in the next seven days and kick ass. Just go have fun. Do things you normally don't do. Be bold. Be strong. Be positive. David Essel's in the box for you. Don't forget all the archives at talkdavid.com, and I'll see you next week. Till then, rock on. ready for a miracle. Hi, David Essel here, inviting you to join our 10-week course, Success and Miracles, beginning Tuesday, October 7th for 10 straight weeks. You'll be joined by many other success-minded people who want what you want, success and miracles. Whether it's love, wealth, or health, go to talkdavid.com right now. This teleconference series is open to anyone in the USA. That's talkdavid.com. Join the course, Success and Miracles, to change your life now. Talkdavid.com. That's talkdavid.com.